I know there's a, there's a possibility that some of you, like, brought a friend, a friend who hasn't been around Door of Hope, and right now you're whispering to them, this is not the normal guy. <laughs> I don't know this man, and that's okay. Hello, my name is Cameron. It's so wonderful to be with you. It really is, from the bottom of my heart. Um, oh, I had Pip told me to make an announcement. If you have kids, uh, or I guess if you don't have kids and you just prefer watching things on a little TV downstairs, um, there is a live stream downstairs with everything happening up here. So if you need to take the kids down, get the wiggles out, that is available here. It'll be available every night and over at the Northeast Building, too. So please take advantage if you need to. Um, but yeah, my name's Cameron, and I'm looking around the crowd, and I know some people, and there's a lot of people I don't know. Um, so that means you probably don't know me either. Um, I was the pastor of community groups here at when it was just called Door of Hope uh, for five years, uh, about seven years ago starting. Um, I oversaw community groups, and then as we started dreaming about once again trying this idea of seeing different expressions of Door of Hope around the city, and we decided on this idea, we're going to plant a church in northeast Portland. It's called Door of Hope Northeast. Yeah. Louise is part of it. <laughs> I did not bring him as just like a personal hype man. I may consider the idea moving forward. I do love it. Um, but yeah, uh, just two years ago, two Sundays before COVID shut the world down, we had our first worship gathering in Northeast Portland called uh, Door of Hope Northeast down on 9th and Fremont. Um, and this is, I, I come here probably every couple weeks to meet with people or see the staff or drop, you know, things off or whatever. Uh, but this is my first time to be back in this space with y'all. Uh, since we launched. It's been like two plus years. So it is genuinely like a joy and a privilege and an honor. So thank you. Thank you for letting me be, be here. Um, and I just want to say like Door of Hope family is two churches now. Like praise God for that. Even in the middle of a pandemic, for one, for one church to survive in a pandemic is a huge deal. Uh, for it to plant another church that has become self-sustaining and independent and, you know, able to have mutuality is a blessing of God. So we just want to acknowledge that and name that. Um, and by God's grace and provision, we will see more communities planted around Portland as well. But for now, it's just a joy to be together with you and worship Jesus together as a family of churches this week. Um, I want to start with this. We're, we're, of course, continuing the seven statements from the cross, but to, to tee up tonight's statement, the second statement, I want to ask if you've ever had this question. And maybe, maybe the way to tee it up is, I, I don't know, I feel like it's become a trope in movies. You've seen this before, shows where, like, two people are having, like, a really serious private conversation about someone, and it turns into, like, gossip, like, this person, I can't stand this person, I hate this person. Yeah, they're, they're terrible, I can't stand them either. And then what always happens if it's in a bathroom, you know what happens? The toilet flushes, you know? You know that move, the toilet flushes, and then they just, like, get really tense and the stall slowly opens. And the per of course, it's the person that they were talking about, that they were gossiping about, comes out and is like, hello. Hello, Jerry. <laughs> His name's always Jerry. Um, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know about that. So <laughs> anyway, they come out. And that's the thing, like, it happens in TV, it happens in film. Um, I, the, the story that comes to mind for me was the story, I was, I believe, in 10th grade. I could have the details fuzzy, but 
this girl had broken my heart. Her name was Brittany. I'm not going to say any more about her name because now these things go out on the internet, could embarrass her or whatever. Um, but she'd broken my heart. We, we were almost dated. I, I almost dated a lot of girls in high school. Um, I was too embarrassed to like really, really, really date them. Um, but her deciding not to date my non-invitation to date her really broke my heart. And uh, I ended up as doing, doing what many of my peers did at that time, which was write a song. So we were having this hangout with the guys, and I was like, yeah, Brittany, she broke my heart, man. This is terrible. And so we wrote this obnoxious song in the style of Tenacious D. Um, and if you don't, maybe you know this, there is nothing more obnoxious than 10th grade boys being really into Tenacious D, okay? And I was. I really was. And I wrote down the lyrics in my friend's notebook. I don't remember what they were. And my friend ended up taking this home. Well, here's, here's my version of the, the toilet flushing. Uh, the, next, like, the next Monday at school, I was in the hall, and she came up to me, and she was like, I found your lyrics. I was like, oh, no, oh, no. And she's like, that was pretty mean. And you know, it wasn't anything hyper over the top or cruel or whatever, but I remember the red-hot sting of embarrassment. And just knowing... Uh, it. it, it Honestly, it was pretty minimal. It's pretty, in the scheme of wronging people, pretty minor. But that hot embarrassment of knowing that I had wronged someone, even if it was in a silly way, to be caught red-handed, like totally missing them. Um, the solemnity of my jokes, and, and honestly, this juvenile cruelty crashed into these feelings of a real person that I cared about. And honestly, sidebar, that's kind of why the internet became such a cruel place, you know? It's a lot easier to mock and deride and humiliate someone from a distance. It's a lot easier to do it from a distance than it is to do it up close, face-to-face, with, an, with another image bearer of God. What does this have to do with Jesus' second statement from the cross? You may well be asking. You would appropriately be asking. Well, let's read this text. Luke 23, verse, starting in verse 39. It's a short one. Of course, this is as Jesus crucified. It says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom And he, that's Jesus, said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Father, each of these statements from the cross, they're they're jam-packed with just theological richness and significance, and they can become, even in these short statements, heady. And we pray that they wouldn't tonight, Lord. We pray that the heart, the heart of your gospel, the heart of of the cross, the heart of the radical gift of the Son of God entering into the world and dying in our place for our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins, would be illuminated. That for people maybe in this room, Lord, who, who, who don't know much about Jesus, maybe are curious, maybe aren't, Lord, that you would just bring yourself to the forefront unmistakably, and for those who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, that a fresh encounter with this scripture, Lord, would just drive us to worship and to lean in and to follow. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 
The scene picks up. You gather it here. We're not reading much more context than this, but three men were sentenced by the Roman state to death by crucifixion. And you've probably heard this before if you've been around church any amount of time, but crucifixion was not just uh, any execution method. It was not an efficient means to kill someone. It was designed to scare people away from doing the things that, er that earned these criminals this fate. And the power of its deterrence was this. Cruelty. Cruelty. It was cruelty and it was shame. Both in the brutality of the punishment, beatings, whippings, dragging a heavy cross, finally being fixed to that cross with nails to die slowly, usually from asphyxiation, but not just this brutality. The shame Shame was an inseparable intended part of crucifixion. Mockery, spitting, even the humiliation of being hoisted up bare naked. Most of our depictions of Jesus, I think rightfully so, don't depict him bare naked, but he would have been bare naked, vulnerable for all to see. I have to turn my paper. So it's amidst this pain, it's amidst the pain of this crucifixion, the exhaustion, the shame, that a conversation breaks out amongst three men nailed side by side to these crosses. Um, conversation amongst crucifixion victims is actually historically attested to. You can go read historians who talk about these uh, people who have been crucified talking to one another, having these conversations. But you have to imagine when you read this, don't, don't import a sanitized version of this. You have to imagine how exhausted and how halting and how agonized and how pained every word would have been as it came out of these men's mouths. Luke records the laborious words of these three, of three men, three men here. We're going to call them this, a man of presumption, a man of repentance, and the king of glory and the king of grace. And we're going to let each of these, each of their words kind of form our main three points here. First, the man of presumption. We're told he was a criminal. And the Greek word translated criminal could, could be translated something like uh, robber or criminal. That's what ESV has, criminal. Um, but there's some scholarly debate that maybe the better translation is actually revolutionary or seditionist. Um, there's, I think, a fairly compelling, not airtight, but fairly compelling argument that these, these criminals hanging on these crosses next to Jesus uh, were two who had actually tried to overthrow Rome. And so they were... They were facing the full weight of the Roman government. Either way, either way, whatever the charge, this man, this first man, was guilty. He was guilty. Um, he mocks Jesus then. And he asks, you can read it, are you not the Messiah? He's asking, aren't, aren't you God's chosen king? Aren't you the one that God sent, uh, that he was gonna, God's going to bring all of his promises to bear, bring them to completion, bring them to fulfillment through you? Aren't you the one that's supposed to be powerful? Aren't you the one who's supposed to raise up in military might and vanquish all of Israel's enemies? And on and on and on. That's what's loaded into that phrase, he asks. He says, then get us down from here. Get yourself down and get me down from here. It's mockery. It's mockery, but, but we can get even we could put a finer point on it. It's sarcasm, first of all. He's, it's, it's this idea of some Messiah. You know, I don't think we're meant to see this man as making a genuine claim to Jesus' Messiahship. Hey, you really are the Messiah, so come on, let's do this. He's mocking Jesus. Yeah, you're the Messiah. Come on, get us down. Sarcasm. I don't know if you know this, Jesus, but dying next to people like us isn't what Messiahs do. It's just not what they do. 
But more than just sarcasm and mockery, there's a sense of entitlement too. Because he actually starts barking a command at Jesus. It's a Greek command. Save yourself and us. He commands Jesus. Save yourself and us. This man comes to Jesus, and if there's any part of him that's holding out hope that maybe Jesus does have some sort of authority to get them out of this jam, he commands Jesus with what to do. There's something deep down there somewhere in him that thinks Jesus owes him, that thinks he can set the agenda of what's, of what's to happen. He wants to bend Jesus' will to his agenda. And you know what's inter- interesting, what he's calling for here, if you see it? look at it through a slightly theological lens, or a literal one, he's calling for a crossless salvation, huh? Get off the cross, come down, and get me down while you're at it. This man wants Jesus, but only on his terms. Get me down from here. So I'll call this man, more than anything, a man of entitlement, the belief that you are owed something. That sense of entitlement is so corrosive to us. It's so corrosive to our spirits. And my guess is that somewhere deep down, we all have this same thing. We're entitled to, to Jesus. We're entitled to him doing things our way. We're entitled to bending him to submission to our wills. However salvation's supposed to work out, we, we've got a good plan, and he better bend it into our plan or else we don't want any part of him. And just as a sidebar, notice this. This man didn't realize that in the deepest sense, Jesus was already at work to make his salvation possible. You see that? Save yourself and save me. Save me, Jesus. He commands Jesus, save me. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing, isn't it? To make it so that this man's final fate would not have to be in agony. He was working, and this man, in his ignorance, is asking Jesus to save himself. He was asking for there to be no sure way for him to be saved. If Jesus was come down from that cross, this man is doomed. The whole reason Jesus was hanging next to this man was to save him, if he'd receive it. But sadly, as far as we know, looks like this man could not see past his own demands, his own vision for what the Messiah and salvation must look like, and he leaves it there. I'm hearing that little click. Anybody have an idea why I'm, is that my glasses banging this thing? Maybe? You can't hear it? Check, check, check. I can do this all night. You hear that, right? What is that? It is annoying. like a metal plate in my jaw that I don't know about. I guess if anyone has an idea, you can come up and adjust this thing on me. I'm going to just keep going. All right. So that's the first man, man of entitlement. What about the next man? What about the next man? Well, the second man, we'll call, we'll call him the man of humility because of his humble, repentant posture. That's probably obvious enough to see. Um, but we have to note a couple things about this man first. First, uh, he too was a criminal. For another, we might have to read a little bit earlier to get the context here, but this man also had been adding to the chorus of mockers of Jesus. Do you know that? Not long before. If we can harmonize what all the biblical gospels tell us about this story, 
there is a constant stream of mockery coming at Jesus on his way to the cross and when he's actually on the cross. There was a constant stream of mockery. It included the Roman soldiers. It included the chief priests. It included the elders. It included the scribes. It included uh, just people walking by, just random people getting their little jabs in at the Lord. There was even a sign above him, a mocking sign, an intended to be ironic sign, the king of the Jews that was dripping with sarcasm. And then Matthew 27, 44, the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. The robbers, plural, both of them. So what happened? What happened? You have to, you have to begin to imagine that amidst the chaos, you know, people being nailed into wood, people mocking, people throwing things, people spitting, people shouting, people blaspheming Jesus. Amidst the agony, this man started to take notice of Jesus. The way Jesus didn't fight back, the love amidst the agony, the control, the grace that he extended even to his torturers. Perhaps even hearing the words that Jesus or that uh, Josh opened up for us last night. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This second man was seeing this Jesus. In seeing the suffering Messiah bear his suffering as a man on a mission with agony in his bones, but love and grace and mercy and peace and forgiveness in his heart, he suddenly did not, he suddenly, he didn't suddenly know all there was to know about Jesus, but he knew that Jesus was where life is. All the theological questions you might have or what does it mean for this guy to be the Messiah if he even is, none of that was figured out. None of it was sorted. None of it was settled. But, you know, I think this is where life is. This man. Somewhere between openly mocking him and this man's death, he saw Jesus for who he was. And this man forces us to reckon with the reality that people don't come to Jesus because of some innate quality in in and of themselves. You know that, right? And I, I'll speak to those of you who've been maybe walking with Jesus for a long time, maybe a couple of years, five years, ten years, maybe since childhood, maybe in your 60s and you came to know the Lord when you were 10 or something. You've been walking with him for a long time. That's a beautiful story. Praise God for that story. But if you've been a disciple with Jesus for a long time, you may have started to believe something like this, that there is something in you. Maybe that, that, that people like you and me are just more spiritually sensitive You know, we're just more tuned in to the ways of God. We can just kind of see the big picture. Or that maybe we're more pure-hearted. We're able to grasp divine truths when we encounter them. Yeah, we've got a mind that's ready to receive these beautiful teachings from someone like Jesus. Or maybe that we're not so morally compromised and bent that our consciences are not seared. Our consciences, we could say, are unseared enough, perceptive enough, sensitive enough to appreciate righteousness when we see it and affirm it. Or maybe it's a matter of intelligence. We're the ones who are capable of weighing the rational arguments and the science and the epistemology and arriving at the truth. Really that we're enough like Jesus to see ourselves in him. No. You ever start to think that? No. This man was mere moments, mere minutes, maybe mere hours before mocking and railing against and blaspheming this Jesus. And then he saw Jesus. He didn't unlock something within himself. He saw the king. He saw his heart. He saw his blood. 
It was nothing inside this man that summoned up the eyes to see. It was the one who said, I am the light of the world, hanging beside him, with him, for him, in his place, radiating out. It was the God-man's loving grace overtaking and crowding out this man's cynicism and bitterness and loss of hope. Gazing into the eye of the crucified Savior is the only thing that will absolutely reorient and reorder your entire, entire life. Nothing in you will. It's the only thing that will. So what could this man recognize? What could he recognize in this moment? See, see one thing? He, he recognizes guilt and that his punishment is just. He calls to the other man, don't you fear God? You're under the same sins of condemnation. And we justly, we're receiving the due reward for our deeds. He recognizes his guilt. On some level, he recognizes guilt and that this punishment he's receiving is just. Secondarily, he recognizes that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. We see that in his words. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That means I believe you're the king. I believe yours is the kingdom. I believe you have all the authority. I believe all of these things about you. Maybe not with a lot of propositional detail filled in, but he knew enough to say this man is the one to whom belongs the kingdom of heaven. And maybe a third thing we could put in there, we could infer is, is he believes if Jesus will receive him, then there is hope of life for him. If this Jesus will receive him, then there's hope. There's hope. This is the twin move of repentance and faith. It's the, it's the turning from yourself. It's turning from your own self-justification, turning from whatever it is that you're finding meaning and value and uh, permanence in in your life, leaving that behind, leaving your guilt behind, and turning to trust in this Jesus. Those two, those two things are always two sides of one coin. Repentance and faith or trust or belief. That's the man of humility. He doesn't know much, but he knows the most important thing in the world. And then there's one more man, the king, the king of grace who responds. Here's the statement. Truly, I say to you, and you can pause there. When Jesus says, truly, I say to you, I mean, I shouldn't say. Everything Jesus says is authoritative. Everything he says is worth listening to. Everything he says is true. But when Jesus says, truly, I say to you, verily, verily, listen to this. You, you, you lean forward in your seat a little bit, and you take them seriously. He says, you can take this to the bank. Don't doubt it. Don't wonder if I'm playing around. Don't second guess. I'm telling you the deepest truth here. Today, this day, the same day that you are bleeding out naked in front of strangers hurling insults at us, this today, this day, You will be with me in paradise. When he departs this life, Jesus is saying, he will be with Christ. His body will die, but his spirit will be in the joyful presence of Christ this day. And there was this hope of a resurrection to come. That's probably what this man is, 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 is hoping for. When you come into your kingdom, please, please remember me. He's thinking of a far-off day, and that day is going to come. That resurrection day, the day when the world will all be put right, God eradicates every bit of sin and evil and injustice and whatever from this world. You long for that day, right? 
Yes. That day is coming. But God is even better than that. He's not even going to make this man wait for that day that we are still waiting for 2,000 years later after this. He says, today you get to be with me in paradise. They will get to experience what the theologians call, if you want to go research all this, the intermediate state. There's a state when you die, your spirit goes to the presence of God. And then we await from that intermediate state, the final state, the final putting of right, and the resurrection where our spirits that are with God are raised bodily, bodily, just as Jesus' was. And we get to live with him, under him, alongside him, in the new heavens and the new earth. But he says, today, though you die, you'll be with me. So, another thing to note. This man... (laughs) He could do nothing for Jesus except to throw himself into Jesus' loving arms. His plea is not, he doesn't, he doesn't bargain with this man, with Jesus. He doesn't pull up a resume. He doesn't say, hey, I, maybe, maybe there's a few things I could do for you while we're up here on the cross. Is there anything you need? Anything I can do for you? I can get you something? There's nothing he has. There's nothing he has. He pleads simply just remember me. He's reaching out to the grace of God. It's this, such a simple, powerful image of faith. And it's the only thing that, that allows what Jesus has accomplished on this cross to be for you and for me. So this man had done enough to be guilty in his own mind. And now at the moment of seeing Jesus for who he really is, there's nothing he can do. His hands and his feet are bound. He's bleeding out. He's going to be dead. No task to complete. He can't do any of the things that Jesus commanded his disciples to do. He can't uh, go perform miracles as signs of of the coming kingdom. He can't uh, really strive hard to live out, you know, all the details of the Sermon on the Mount. He can't go and serve the poor or care for widows and orphans. All good things, all important things that believers ought to take very seriously when Jesus commands them. This man has no opportunity, does he? What this tells us, there's no minimum requirement of stuff you must do for God to be received by him. To even ask that question is to miss the point. How much must I do? It's besides the point. Should Christians be growing in Christ-likeness? Yes or no? Yes. Should Christians produce spiritual fruit in their lives? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Will sincere faith naturally spill out into loving works? Yes. But those things will never, ever, 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 ever be the grounds by which you are justified, declared righteous, welcomed into the family, adopted as daughters and sons, given a new identity, given a place in his kingdom, and on and on and on. Ever. It is holy, truly, always, and forever unearned grace. Praise God. Praise God. To conclude, this idea of this unearned, undeserved, unmerited blessing beyond what any of us can imagine. We struggled. We struggled to grasp. We struggled to hang on to it. We struggled to believe it. We struggle to believe it. And what almost 
<laughs> in ways that almost feel unjust when applied to others, but that we long for for ourselves. In this passage, um, I'm always reminded, every time I read this, I don't know why this, well, I do know why it comes to mind because the words are, are right there. I'm always reminded of the words from one of my favorite worship songs, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. I'm sure most of you know this. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Unashamed, ashamed, ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him here, there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And I think the truth is, whether explicitly or implicitly, we have all sat in that mocker's seat. We've all been the ones to, to, to reject Jesus at some point or another. Even if you've been walking with him for 10 years, there are moments where you say, not your way, mine. I don't want to be associated with you. I don't want to look like you. I don't want to be associated with the things that you're known for, that people don't like, whatever. We revile him. We mock him. We gossip about him. We slander him. We do it behind his back. We've all sat in the mocker seat, the entitled seat, the seat that says, hey, Jesus, yeah, but do it my way. Yeah, that kingdom sounds nice, but on my terms. We sit in the, in the presumptuous seat. And maybe, for the very first time tonight, you find God stirring your heart. Maybe there's something pushing and pulling inside of you, and maybe it's a bad burrito. Sometimes it is. Or maybe it's the Spirit of God. Probably, if you're feeling that, it's the Spirit of God stirring your heart. Maybe you've dismissed Jesus. Maybe you've kept him at arm's length. Maybe you've demanded from him what, what he never intended to offer. Maybe you've ridiculed him. You know what this passage says? He can take it. He can take it. And he keeps loving you. And he keeps offering his forgiveness and grace. And he will not come down from that cross. Even if in your backwards economy he ought to, he's going to stay there to do everything necessary to save you. And like the thief on the cross that Jesus welcomes into his family never to be revoked on this man's deathbed, you are never too far gone to come to Jesus. Come to him tonight. If you feel him stirring in you, Share with someone. Even if you're like, I don't know what this means, but there's something going on in here. And I'm not committing to anything, okay? But something's going on. Please, 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 as we're worshiping, come and share with someone. There will be people up here to pray. Share. Say, I don't know what this is, but it might be the God of the universe right here in my midst. Someone will pray with you and, and process with that. You and follow up with you. You might not get all the answers tonight about what's going on. But that's who Jesus is. And for those of you that have been following Jesus for some time, I presume that's probably the majority of this room. Come into multiple Holy Week nights and one week, whatever. Probably, probably most of you are Christians in the room. And that's amazing. We want you here, of course. But maybe things have turned cold. They always do at some point. They always do. They seem to. 
Maybe your Christian life three months or two years ago or three decades ago, you know, when you were thinking about today, doesn't look like you'd hoped. Maybe you're ashamed of how little you've done for him, how little impact you've made for his kingdom, how all the idealism you had in your early days has kind of withered away and you're just, you know, surviving. You know what this passage says? He can take it. And he keeps loving you. And he keeps offering his forgiveness and grace. And if the cross has become old hat to you and you're like, ah, whatever, that's all. I, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that's, I think that's important, but whatever, it has no bearing for me today. He keeps offering it again and again and again and again. And again, and again, and again, and again. And so tonight, if that's you, if you, if you feel that, you feel God stirring in your heart. Maybe it's a burrito, maybe. Or maybe it's the God of the universe stirring up something inside of you. Maybe it is. Then tonight, come back to the loving arms of our king. I'm not saying you had to be apostate or whatever, but, but if you've felt distance from him, there's nothing in the way. The second you confess, fellowship is restored. Come. He's waiting there with open arms for you. Come back to the loving arms of the king who has already supplied all that you need to rest secure in him. Amen. Three men on three crosses. An entitled man who wants Jesus to get off the cross. A humble man who says, I don't know who this guy is, but I think the key to life with God is found in him. So I'm just going to throw myself at him and say, remember me. And you know what Jesus says? I will remember you. I will remember you. That's a promise he makes to you. That's a promise he makes to me. If you've forgotten it, remember it right now. And let's praise God right now. Does that sound good? Let's worship him.